Hi, this is Sebastian Levy, and you're listening to the Functional Tennis Podcast. Welcome to episode 39 of the Functional Tennis Podcast. I'm Fabio Mala, your host. This week, we have an exceptional podcast interview with Sebastian Lavi from New Zealand. Seb and his family moved from New Zealand to France as an 11-year-old to train at the Mortoglu Tennis Academy. He was part of a great cohort of players there. His family moves back to New Zealand and he was left in good hands of Patrick, who became a mentor to him, became a father figure to him. And he tells us all about that. Really interesting. He tells us about the challenges, the struggles he had as a junior player, moving away from his family and then moving on to the senior tour. And then more recently, he set up, he's only 27, and he set up the Lavi Tennis Academy in New Zealand, where tennis started for him. And he tells us all about his academy, his great team he has there. It's a really personal and touching episode, which I really enjoyed. And I think you will too. Before we get started, big shout out to our podcast sponsors, Head. And okay, here we go. Hi, Seb. How are you? Hey, Fab. Very well. Thank you. Yourself? Very good. Thank you. Trying to dodge this coronavirus here in my bunker, in my home. But no, uh, apart from that, everything's going great. It's even better to have you on the on the phone here. I know we talked about this a while ago and it was great when I got the notification to say that you'd booked in for a call. So really excited to have you on the show and I think you have a great story. And yeah, can't wait to share it with everybody. A bit about Seb. Seb is former player, junior player, played pro for a while, played Davis Cup for New Zealand and then went off coaching and now set up his own academy. So it's really exciting. You've ticked a lot of boxes there. And let's start with, where did tennis start for you, Seb? Tennis started for me in Auckland, New Zealand. I think I was four or five years old when I first picked up my racket. Both my parents played tennis just as a hobby and I just came along to the club, really enjoyed it. And it just sort of kicked in from there with a lot of support from my parents. Ended up taking me to the Pat Cash Academy at nine years old and then the Moratoglu Tennis Academy at 10, which I stayed over there for close to 10 years. And now I'm back over to New Zealand where I started in the same club to open the academy. So it's been a it's been a wild ride and ended up exactly where I started. Whoa, that's pretty crazy. So wait, a lot must have happened in those 11 years. You must have been pretty talented so when you first picked up a racket. I think I definitely had natural skills for it. I grew up playing a bit of cricket, a bit of rugby bit of soccer. So I think as a kid, I was, I was reasonably athletic. But I think what made the difference for me growing up was really just the support of my parents and the discipline that they installed in the day-to-day training environment. Tennis was always fun for me until 11 or 12, where it became really something that I wanted to do as a career. But just to have that discipline and that day-to-day sort of positive competitive environment that my parents helped put in really made a difference for me growing up and, and for my growth. What do you mean by discipline? For me, discipline would be somebody that would be forced to do something. But how was it in your case? No, um, for me, the discipline is more when you do something, you do it really well. I didn't necessarily play hours and hours of tennis growing up. I maybe did a couple of times, 45 minutes a day. But when I went out there, it was it was really focused and it was specific to what I needed to get better. So I think just just that efficiency just started to bring on a bit of a mindset. I, I, yeah, I guess I would use discipline. It does sound a little bit strict, but I can assure you there was no um, forcing in the matter. Yeah, but, <laughs> and tell me, so were they? Were your parents your coaches? They were both always very involved. Uh, what I normally did as a pretty much from six years onwards, I would take a lesson in the morning with a coach. I was really fortunate to have some great coaches. Chris Lewis, who made Wimbledon final, was one of my first coaches. And then Brett Stevens, who was also top 50 at the time, was the coach that followed on from there. So I would spend about an hour with him in the morning. And then in the afternoon, I'd go back out on court with my dad and we'd just basically repeat what I learned for 45 minutes to an hour. And that was that, that was just a really good way to to be efficient, obviously, with resources, because a lot of coaching is expensive, but also just being able to have that support of my father who was who was there really doing it with me made a big difference. That sounds pretty special, especially being able to spend time with your father and him being interested as well in the game and you, which is great. So 
you ended up, well, your first move was to the Pat Cash Academy. Where was that located? Uh, that was in the Gold Coast at the time. It was it was Pat Cash and there was also Gavin Hopper who was who was pretty well um pretty well known coach. That was my first sort of taste of international tennis, and uh, I think I probably did better than I anticipated and than my parents anticipated. Growing up in New Zealand, you're reasonably isolated to the rest of the world, and um, when we went over there, we we're sort of like, well, now you'll get introduced to real tennis, and I actually did really well. That was sort of the start of something to say, well, you know what, this could actually be. This could be something we could do for long term, and it was a bit of a bit of a flick of a switch in our family's commitment to my tennis. That was a real turning point. And tell me, Seb, did your family move with you to the Gold Coast, or did you go on your own? You're only what nine or ten at this stage. Yeah, I, think, uh, I was nine years old at the time. My family originally we all moved over there together, but just due to the fact that they had to work, my dad had to come back and forth a little bit to Auckland, which wasn't a big deal reasonably quick flight over so that that worked quite well for about a year and then after that we just wanted to take a next step to Europe because that's really where the hub of tennis is essentially so we wanted to head over there and then we moved over there as a family that was a big decision sold everything sold our house wow put everything in a shipping container didn't have an address to send it to so oh, I was wow. just waiting in the port of Marseille for a few months that's absolutely crazy you're 10 at this day you're like that is crazy and <laughs> you hear a lot of these stories from Russians Eastern Europeans moving to the States, but I've never heard it more from a more developed country, let's say, New Zealand. So tell me, why and how did you pick Patrick Mortoglu's academy? It would have been early days at his place. It was. It actually happened um, quite randomly and very organically because we had a coach that I was working with at the Pat Cash Academy who knew somebody in a tiny French village um, called Cabrice just outside of Grasse. And we went there originally for three months. That's where we just ended up. That was the first location we went to. And from then, the coach had to go back to Australia. So we were sort of stuck in France, put everything in a car and we're like, let's just drive to Paris. So we, we drove up to Paris and fu actually funny story, it was as the French like to do their strikes. It was one of the days that the French were striking for all their transport. So trains, airplanes, buses, nobody could get out. So we just drove into Paris and it was the busiest I've ever seen in the city. And we ended up finding a one, a single room hotel after about five hours of walking the streets where we, uh, me, my brother and my parents all slept in there. And that was sort of like, we're all in now. <laughs> and then just again, just there was one Kiwi girl that was at Patrick Moratoglu's that we had heard of. We're like, can we come and have a little trial? And uh, just went in there. And from there, it was just the start of something really incredible, actually. And he was, he started off in Paris. He started off in Paris, yeah. So he was actually, he moved twice while in Paris. The first location was in the east in um, a place called Montreuil where they had about eight indoor courts, a few outdoor courts. It wasn't nearly as glamorous and as um, high-tech as it is now, but it was, it was still a great training place with Bagdadis was training there, Ancic, Karlovic, Pauline Parmont. Yeah, there was a lot of great players. So straight away it had that, it, it sort of had that environment that we wanted to be a part of. Wow, that must have been, yeah, such an unbelievable scene these top international players there and it must give you another kick so you're 10 here you're in Paris do you do you feel any, I know you're 10 you may not feel any pressure but did you feel any sort of pressure or like they're all there because of you um looking back at it now I'd see it quite differently at the time I was just extremely happy to be playing tennis and excited and it was an adventure and I know that my mother originally is from Holland my father from Israel so for them moving around I don't think was as big of a big deal as if uh, they'd just grown up in New Zealand their whole life. So it didn't necessarily feel like a huge undertaking at the time. And looking back at it, it was honestly, I was just loving the experience. And I think we're all very excited about, about where it could go. And my brother was playing a little bit of tennis as well. So it, it was more like a family mission, you could say. Family vacation, long-term family <laughs> vacation. Was your brother younger or older than you? My brother's three years younger than me, so he was only seven at the time. I think for him, it was quite a difficult move, being young, um, having to follow in my step, footsteps in a way. But he fit in. He learned French in about six months, being seven years old, and which he still speaks today, living in New Zealand, which is quite cool. Um, so it was, uh, yeah, it was a big family move that I'm extremely grateful for. Brother, father, mother, they all made huge sacrifices for me, which, which shaped me today. And did they get jobs over there? Did they learn to speak French? Was it difficult for them? It was. So they actually only stayed for a year. So originally the plan was live over there for as long as we need to. After about a year, my dad is useless in French, useless in, in most languages, and he will back that up. So he he struggled to find any work in his area. Um, 
but they moved back to New Zealand about a year and a half later. That was also, I guess, another turning point when I was about 12 years old to decide if I wanted to move back with my family or, or stay in France. And you were, were you enjoying the academy? Yeah, I loved it. I mean, for me, it was it was a huge adventure. I had amazing people supporting me. Um, Patrick Moradoglu, who really took me under his wing from from the start. But then when my parents left, uh, I lived with him for a few years as well. That was essentially my family for the for the 10 years following, really. Wow. And was there other players living with you as well, or was it just you two? There was a few players. Uh, I had a room on site at the academy, which I stayed at when Patrick was traveling. And then there was a bunch of other guys. I used to train in a group with Nicolas Basilashvili, Renzo Olivo, Martin Fuksovic. That was sort of my main group. And and Sam Barry, actually, for a, for a while in there, too. So that was... A mutual friend. A yeah. mutual friend, Sammy. So that was the core group. And just based on the fact that I was a little bit younger when I got there, I think I had that slightly closer relationship with Patrick. But he was always very generous to, to all the players. So we all... We all spent some time at his house and, and his family. Were you good friends with Sam? Uh, for those who don't know, Sam Barry, Irish international Davis Cup player, retired last year. I'm asking you the question, but I think he was a good friend with Seb while you guys were in Mortogaloo. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, everyone got along extremely well. Um, it wasn't a big academy in the sense that there was probably only about 20 to 30 key players that were there full time. We did a lot of traveling together. I think the fact that we both realized after about a week that the Irish say togs and the Kiwi say togs was probably a turning point in our relationship where we realized we had a lot in Best you know, we had a lot in a lot in common. And good, and, good. and we always got on extremely well. And you still keep in contact all the other lads? Most of them. Most of them. Some of them closer than others, but again, that that was my family growing up and we spent so much time together that I don't necessarily keep in contact with them that much, but when we do see each other it's you know, it's like we it's like it always was. Great. I must say, and I've told you thanks before, but uh, Sebastian did hook me up with Renzo Olivo in Wimbledon a few years ago. And I remember showing up, watching him practice, and he had the worst practice ever. He just wasn't feeling it at all. I don't think he made one ball. I'm like, I got to go up to say thanks to this guy as well. And after the court, his coach walks off. He's just like, lying on the side of the practice court Wimbledon hand in his head sorry a head in his hands and I'm like I can't say anything to this guy he's going to explode like you don't talk to a tennis player when, especially either after they lose or after they had a ridiculously bad practice session and I don't think he knows much English either but I went up to him afterwards said thanks he was really nice and yeah it was good experience yeah yeah <laughs> but which I haven't seen hopefully he'll get back to he's been a bit has struggled a little bit since then I think hopefully he can find his form again yeah he made um, first good result in a while actually he made semi-finals in the ATP 250 in Santiago last week so that's or two weeks ago so that's um, yeah that's, it's great to see him great to see him competing and performing in at that level because he is I mean he's definitely got the potential to be a top 50 player he's already hung around the the 70 mark for a while and in Tsonga in French Open he's got he's got a great game um, so I'd love to see him get back up there yeah hopefully hopefully so you're in Motogaloo you're doing you're traveling playing junior ITFs how old were you when you started playing the junior ITFs um, I think my first ITF I was 14 years old um, it was on the back of as a New Zealand with Ben McLaughlin was also playing with us at the time who's now playing for Japan we had Ben McLaughlin and another a kid who went to college. So we did really well in the under-14s world junior teams in Czech Republic. And from that, um, we all got wildcards into the Auckland ITF the following January um, when we were all 14. And that was that really kicked it off. So from there, we played a few together in New Zealand. And then I was able to get some points on the board and, and continued from 14 onwards. So I had a pretty long ITF career, you could say, actually. When did you move into Futures? Uh, I moved into Futures when I was about 17. Played my first few when I was in my first year of junior still. I had a little bit of success qualifying for a few. Got a few. I think I got a couple of points that year, um, which is really exciting. But I had a couple of rough years around that period, just from a mental, physical, and just, a, I guess, self-belief perspective. Those were probably my toughest years in tennis. So probably not as good results-wise as I would have liked, but that was that was an incredible learning experience to go through that ITF tour playing the Junior Grand Slams and then just going straight off to some random future where nobody's watching and feeling like you're at the lowest point of the world. So it was a, it was it was a it was a very mixed bag, but it was it was a great learning experience. 
few episodes ago, we had Johnny O'Mara on the show and he was saying the exact same thing. Went from playing junior Grand Slams to the Futures. He struggled. He said he just did not want to be there. It wasn't. He didn't get the buzz from it and he struggled and luckily managed. He moved on quickly. I think the key is to get out of the Futures as quick as you can. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough world, to be honest. It's a tough situation because the level is very high. Juniors is a good level, but you can get a lot of a lot of matches where if you dig in, you probably win. But to win a future, you have to dig in every single day to even have a chance of winning it. And that's just a big step up. And I think personally, and from what I've seen from players transitioning, if you're not ready to take those hits on your ego, you're really going to struggle because it's a bit of a lonely world. And if you're not, if you're not willing to take those hits, you're not going to get through very quickly. I've heard that said as well. I think it was Jay Clark who we had on here as well said the same, that at junior level, once you dig in, you will win. But as you say, once you get to senior level, you have to, at futures level even, you have to dig in every day and you're competing against guys who are trying to, I know you don't make much money at that level, but they're still want to try and make as much as they can from the week for their family, for whatever reason. It's just a, it's a different world completely. And so, Seb, just come back to Mortoglu. Who was the big dog back in Mortoglu when you were there? Was there somebody who you all looked up to who maybe a bit of jealousy over or who was just could whip all your asses because they were just that bit better well there was, there was a lot of movement back and forth at our age from 12 to 15 there wasn't necessarily anyone that was well above us i think to be fair to the whole group was it you i would probably say i won a little bit more against the others than they won against me but overall i think we had a really strong group you know like when we went and played any international event in our age group we we're always we we're always making finals there's always at least one of us in the final so i think we had a really really high level group probably we were as a group the ones that would would beat most of the others so that was incredibly i was actually really fortunate to be able to grow up in that environment where nobody really thought anything of it you know when i was playing with renzo with sam it was just you know like i just want to beat this guy but when we went to the tournament the next week, there wasn't many guys that level. So it was really, really a great way to get that match and that competitive play in. So that was that was really good. But then Grigor Dimitrov came in when he was 17 and I was 16, I believe. And uh, and that was also a little bit of a hit on my ego. I don't think I ever want to set off him and always felt, always felt way behind. What was so good about him at that young age? Multiple things, but the biggest thing that he did really well was he just took so much time away from his opponent. Playing against him, you didn't really feel like you were ever in in the right position to set up and really just play with balance really it was just a any any return or any serve that wasn't hit perfectly you're just on the back foot straight away and that really plays a toll or has a toll on you after three or four games or after three or four months where you're just like <laughs> this guy just keeps beating me day in and day out i actually remember i i got a seven six set once and the next day we came back and i lost six love and i was just like this is not gonna this is not gonna work that was a struggle but it was it, it was a great experience as well and he's a great guy so i was it's all good. <laughs> it's good to have people like that. You know, you need your ego checked every now and again. And tell me, so when you were at Matoglu, was did you pay to be there or was it paid for? No, at the time, we, myself and a few of the other players had uh, contracts with Patrick. Um, so he basically fully supported us. And if one day we got to top 100, we'd have to pay him back. And then a, a tiny percentage of our prize money on top of that would go back to him just as his investment. But um, that has never come up, I think, in the 15 years I've been talking to Patrick or some players that have been able to be in that position and pay him back have. But he's he's just so passionate and extremely generous. And I know that anytime he's ever stepped on court with us, it was never about money. It was just about you know, tennis and how, how good can we be and how much can we get out of the sport. So really grateful to him to give us that experience. Great, great to hear. And all these players you trained with, did they arrive at the academy being top players already? Or how much did Mortoglu bring, sorry, did Patrick bring players to the these upper levels? A bit of variation, to be honest. There was, I mean, when I came, I came as a 10-year-old. So as a very good 10-year-old, yes, between 10 and 18, there's a long way to go. So, I mean, there wasn't anyone that showed up and bought a racket and wanted to be a top 100 player. And it didn't start from scratch, but the path is long. And someone like Coco Goff, for example, who arrived at the academy as an 11-year-old, who's was obviously a very good 11-year-old, but there's still a long way to go. So yeah. it's quite a tricky question to answer, but there's definitely a lot of development. But at the same time, it, it's not, you know, did he develop the player? Were the techniques already in place? There's a lot up in the air which can be discussed, but I feel from my perspective, I really went through that whole tennis journey within the academy. Obviously, 
culture is a big thing. He must have created a good culture, which had all you guys there. And that will help get success. That environment that we had made us want to give our best on a daily on a daily basis. If it was on a tennis court or if it was during fitness, we had the right people there to, to really push us. And I think getting those right people there that are obviously knowledgeable, but also have the passion just rubs off on you as a kid or as an adult. Obviously, Patrick was a, was a massive part of my development, but there's another 20 people that I grew up with, their coaches or fitness trainers, who, who today I still consider extremely close friends and, and even family for, for some. It's re- it was really your family, wasn't it? That's what it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Would you recommend kids now to leave their parents, go to academy for like five, six, seven years? That's actually, that is a good question. And that also actually links into a little bit what I'm trying to do in New Zealand, creating an academy here that sort of, you can train at international standards. So for me, I think it is necessary at a certain age to start to spend a lot of time training and traveling overseas. Two reasons. Firstly, because tennis is an international sport. Surfaces, conditions, different players, you have to get that experience from a young age. However, I do think there's a balance of getting the right age with the right family situation and not putting more pressure on the child that that they already feel due to the fact that they're trying to become a world-class tennis player. So if I just had to put an age out there, I would say from about 15 or 16 years old, I would say, you know what, you've either got to train overseas or get in a really good ITF schedule or start to play futures or start to look at college seriously. Before that, if you're in the right environment where you can train hard, you've got good coaches, you've got good kids to train with that push you, I think it's it's probably quite debatable. Yeah, it really comes down to circumstances, doesn't it? Every circumstance is different and yeah, yeah what options you have as well. Exactly. In my case, if I was to go back and, and tweak a few things, I would probably say spending two to three more years with my family, either in France or back in New Zealand, probably would have helped my personal development. Um, obviously I would have lost out on a lot of things that I gained, but I think that for a young tennis player, they've got to feel fully supported. And and at the end of the day, your parents and your family are normally the ones that do that the most. It reminds me a bit of all the the kids who go to get soccer scholarships to the UK or the European teams. Some leave when they're 11, 12. And I know in some cases the clubs pay for jobs for the, or they get the parents' jobs, but most of the cases, the parents stay at home, the kids go over and they come home every so often. So it doesn't only happen in tennis, it probably happens a lot less in tennis than all these other sports out there, especially football, where it's quite common. So you're at Mortoglu playing tournaments. When was the decision to fully go after this at the pro level? When did that come? Difficult, again, to put an exact age to it. I think I think probably as a family, when we made the move to France when I was about 10, it was like, this is it. And it's never been... I don't ever remember not wanting to be a tennis player. Even probably from six or seven years old, it was probably a dream. It didn't become sort of a reality until I got to France and my family was back in New Zealand and I was like, well, this is what I'm here for. And um, even from a schooling perspective, um, I didn't do as much as I should have. Um, I was doing correspondence through the New Zealand system, which at the time wasn't online. It was, you fill out a book, you send it back to New Zealand and they send you another book. So, so that wasn't the most efficient way to learn. No, definitely not. <laughs> and so I, I fell behind in those few years from a schooling perspective. So it was really, it was just really all in with my tennis. And I was, again, I was really lucky to have cultured and people that really wanted to help me around me because they gave me an education that probably wasn't a formal education, but it was an education that gave me a lot of tools for life, really. You probably got a common sense education, which can be more important than <laughs> <in> schooling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd like to say I sometimes use common sense. Yes, there you go. I think you can learn <laughs> being around older people and especially if they're good people, you can learn so much. It's amazing. And uh, so was there ever, ever thoughts of a plan B? Not really. I, I think I remember having one conversation with my dad when I was about 14 years old and I'd lost a few matches that I was a bit frustrated about. And I used to love playing cricket growing up and I said, maybe I should just come back to New Zealand and play cricket. But that was more of a reaction than an actual thought process. Again, it's funny because from the time that I arrived in France, I wanted to be a player and I always had the ambition of being a tennis coach after that and growing up in the academy and seeing how it contributes to the kids' lives and see what's see what a difference it really makes just made me want to actually open my own academy one day. And that was probably when I was 12 years old that I started thinking of that already. I actually have some little drawings and plans written down from when I was maybe 14 or 15, outlays of courts and gyms and stuff like that. So it was always it was always in my mind. I guess I didn't expect to do it as young as I'm doing it, 
but it was always it was always a goal and an ambition of mine. That's absolutely amazing. We will get onto your academy soon. But for those who haven't seen it, they, if they follow the Lavi Tennis Academy, what's the account called? Lavi Tennis Academy, is it? Yep, yep. They follow, yeah, that's it. If they follow that, uh, they'll see some like they'll see your facilities, and you're in the the next gen arena in Auckland, and the facilities are amazing. The courts are they must be freshly painted every year. The gym you have is incredible. Swimming pool, ice baths, the coaching team, which we'll talk about, you have is amazing. So you've obviously you've taken all the learnings from Mortoglu and you've brought them to Auckland, which is a great thing for New Zealand tennis and for players who want to train in Auckland. But we'll get on to that. We'll get on to that. Before we get on to that, Seb, we'll just talk about your senior career and challenges you faced on the on the senior tour and how it's not easy out there, no matter how good you were as a junior. How did your senior career go? It's difficult. If I look at it right now, I'd say it was a, it was a failure. If I have to put it as success or failure, um, in my eyes, I definitely didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve. I think it's very easy to find excuses why it didn't work, injuries, lack of money, lack of support. I think those things all played a big part in the reason why I stopped and the reason I didn't go as far as I wanted to. However, at the same time, I also believe that if I truly, truly wanted it and I was 100% dedicated, I probably would have figured a way out to deal with those things. So I, I started off my first year of junior, so I was 17, played a few futures. I remember, probably shouldn't talk about this knowing that Maybe some of the kids from the academy will be listening, but it was a massive learning experience for me. I remember going to Malaysia, first week, first future ever, got qualified, beat some good players, got a point um, against a guy who was maybe five or 600 and got satisfied, lost the next round. There was a bunch of players that said, you know what, we're going to go out to this restaurant, then this bar, and then we might go out afterwards. Do you want to come? And as a 17-year-old, I was just excited to have won a point and I was ready to go and party. And that was my first week ever on the professional tour. So I think what I probably didn't do very well was I fell into that environment of it's okay not to win tournaments as long as you're winning a few matches here and there. That was really the wrong mindset to kick it off with. For me, looking back at it, I'm like, that was a bit disappointing and I don't want any of any of the players I work with to feel satisfied with a few wins here and there. From then on, I actually, I actually had a great time. I was, I traveled sometimes with a coach from the academy, sometimes with, well, Sam Barry, also another Irish guy, Daniel Glancy, um, did a bit of traveling with those guys. And those were amazing experiences where I was fully focused and had some good wins. But I think I just lacked that structure and mental resilience to be able to lose most weeks and just back it up the following week. So, um, that was a little bit disappointing looking back at it now. Can that mental resilience be trained or is it something you just have? both i think it's trained from a young age i think it's trained from a young age but i think it also comes down to the people you have around you and the structure you have around you i, I mean not to say there's nothing wrong with going and and having a night out with the guys but i think if you're really focused and you show up with a tennis coach and a fitness trainer and a physio the chance of you doing that is probably a lot less and obviously that's unrealistic at that level to think you can do that but i just think that all those little things do make a difference for someone who's developing and doesn't know any better and hasn't experienced that yet so I think it's really important moving on to that Futures Tour or Challenger Tour, even ATP Tour for that matter, to have the right people around you that have been there before and, and know what it takes and know where, know where you can slip and try and prevent that before it ever happens. It's good to have probably a mentor, as in if you have a coaching team and you know you see, I don't know, a father figure there, somebody you can re who's been there can guide you, can tell you what not to do. But I'd say you're, you're 17, 18, you probably think, ah, oh, he's wrong. Like the amount of good advice, let's say I got off my father when I was that age and you're like, no, that's not true. Yeah. That can't happen. And looking back now, <laughs> had you listened, I'm not saying yeah. life would have been any better, yeah. but lessons you wouldn't have wouldn't have taken as long to learn, which you're still learning today. So I do think for me it comes down to a lot of the character of a person who will can take the advice and learn from it rather than just fight against it and just say, No, you're wrong. And then eventually you realize eventually you were wrong. But uh, I think for me a lot of it comes down to the character of the teenager and some are just a bit more grown up. And probably in your case you were you know, you want a point, you want to celebrate, I think. And maybe, I don't know who the guys you're with, but they might be a bit older. They like to party on a weekly basis after they lose. And all of a sudden you get stuck with a bad group. Yeah. 
and you may not be that person, but they can you can be dragged down. No, no, I agree, I agree, and I think I think that's where you see the difference between a good coach and a great coach. I think the great coaches are really able to just sort of almost put a spell on you. You know that they you fall under their spell, and you want you obviously want the career for yourself, but you also want to do well for them. And I think that's where that little extra drive, like you said, you know, having rather than saying no to your dad, you might say yes, just if you have a little bit of extra, not really sure what the word is, but if you just have a little bit more. I don't, I don't know what the word is. Is it something <laughs> to prove? I think so. I think so. I think so. I think if it's, if you look at, for example, Andy Murray, who has Ivan Lendl and he doesn't maybe behave the same way as if Ivan Lendl's not in his box, I think just that little form of respect or, or acknowledgement it makes a difference uh, at any level. But rather than fear, I'm sure some tennis players had fear when they look in their box. Like, I'm sure there's enough tennis stories out there that yeah. parents from hell where, <laughs> you know, I can't lose today because it's going to be shit show at home. Did you know we have over 170 great episodes with coaches, players, trainers, and experts working at the highest level of the game? Tap the subscribe button on your podcast app so you don't miss out on the latest episodes of the podcast. And to listen to our great back catalogue of episodes with the biggest game changers in tennis, go to functionaltennispodcast.com. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think there's, uh, some coaches have mentioned have been great with what parents should be telling kids when they lose what they shouldn't be telling kids is probably a better thing that let the kid deal with themselves and eventually they'll talk but i think yeah there's a lot of science behind it now a lot of research and yeah i think there's some good advice out there so yes yeah, so tell me you were traveling with some of the irish guys glancy and barry and on a weekly basis and you said after that first point things got a little bit better looking through your record you played quite a few like you played a lot of challengers i played a few challenges i pretty much played only in europe except for maybe one or two tours one in india one in malaysia maybe one in thailand something like that but almost everything was in europe which was extremely handy because if i did lose i'd just take the train straight back to the academy and keep training in paris that worked out really well from a from a financial aspect it probably wasn't the easiest way to get points on the board i remember playing a whole summer qualifying every week and then losing first round against one of the top seeds almost i think it happened 8 weeks in a row or something like that and that was that was a struggle because I felt like I was doing really well, but I didn't have anything for it, didn't have anything to show. Whereas maybe in hindsight, you know, if I'd maybe gone to Africa for a few weeks, I might have made a semis or a final or something like that. But again, all, all that losing definitely builds you. It's just about the resilience to keep going until you're fully built. <laughs> but um, th there was a lot, of, a lot of good matches in there and a lot of great memories that I'll take out from, from my futures tours and, and a few of the challenges. And I played, played an ATP. She played a few ATP events, which was which was also extremely exciting. I think like the Africa thing can be a bit misleading as well. That technically you can be not that good. Go to Africa, pick up a few points, you're world ranked, and you're like, this is great. But I think you were playing in the right battleground in Europe because that's where the quality players hang out, and they're the guys who were, I think, bigger chance of making it. The guys who are competing in Europe was. Would you agree with that? I agree. I think there's a balance there where I was in qualifying every week. So that was that was quite tiring. Playing two or three matches before you even got a chance to play for a point was probably not the ideal situation. So I think, again, in hindsight, starting off a Futures Tour career or even an ITF Tour career for that matter, you'd want to go and do a little bit of point chasing so that you you make sure your main draw, maybe get seated a few events here and there. And, and that just opens the doors to less fatigue when you go into those main draw matches. And also, you know, you could be playing a qualifier rather than you are the qualifier. And and again, down the line, you know, it might only be three or four matches that that affects. But in tennis, two or three matches could make a huge difference throughout the year. So I think probably a little bit of point chasing when you're starting off is very good just to make sure that you main draw. Yeah, you're right. You can probably do it a wise way where you you pick up a couple of easy points. And then, as you say, it makes your life a lot easier moving forward. You're picking up a few points. When do you play pro tennis until? I stopped when I was 21. Yeah, when I was 21, I had a pretty difficult year. Um, I had a wrist injury that kept coming back and I was I was struggling to play to play for more than two or three weeks in a row with, without it flaring up. So that was mentally a struggle. First of all, to not really trust my forehand, which was probably my best shot. I felt a little bit uncomfortable hitting it. And secondly, just to have that momentum broken up, broken up every few weeks is quite difficult. But my last tournament was actually the ASB Classic in Auckland playing last round of qualities against um, Jimino Travia. 
that was quite a nice way to go out and away again on the court that I grew up on. So nice. That was a, that was a cool experience, and that's actually where we're working from now. So, so <laughs> again, great good memories there. What in all your tennis career, junior, senior? What is there one match win or lose that stands out the most? I think probably the match I enjoyed winning the most was Roehampton Juniors. I beat world number one. Uh, junior at the time that was probably a highlight in terms of results but favorite match ever was in Estoril in the ATP qualifying event it was the second round of qualies and I was just by myself in the middle of Portugal no coach grinding out started to cramp in my leg and then a bunch of Portuguese kids started doing the haka and I was like what's going on <laughs> and ended up winning that match uh, I think seven six in the third or, or, or a very tight third set and just feeling like that was awesome to be out here by myself but still feeling that you know, it was a bit of support and and that was just, yeah, that was probably the highlight of my career. Brilliant. I say you must seem like this is, incre- this is incredible here. <laughs> and yeah. who was the junior, the world number junior that you beat in Roehampton? At the time, it was Daniel Berta. He just won French Open juniors. He actually stopped also a year after that or so. He was a great player at the time, but I'm um, not sure. I think he had... I think he had a couple of children actually the following year, and that definitely hampered his tennis career. <laughs> yeah, unless you're unless you get to the top 150 quickly, you're gonna struggle bringing them around. From your experience, Sam, obviously you've, you're at uh, Mortoglu at a golden age with some great players, with the best juniors in the world, and you've seen or you're friends with some top pros now. How hard does it make to make the transition from a top junior to a top senior? I think it's extremely hard. I, I actually feel like it's too different. It, it's definitely two different circuits. I don't necessarily think meaning you're a good junior will have any any representation in, in your professional career. I think that you have to be within a certain level from 12, 13, 14 years old. You have to be within within grasp of those top players. But I also think, you know, there's with the college route now being, well, college route is probably the way to go for most players these days. With the UTR coming into place, I don't think it's a massive advantage if you, unless you're winning junior grand slams, you know, if you're 20 or 30 in the world in juniors, it's, it doesn't really mean much, I would say. It means something, but it doesn't mean as much as maybe as it did 20, 30 years ago. It can mean a bit of money though. I guess if you're from um, a country that has a big federation, it'll definitely help you with sport. Coming from New Zealand, for example, doesn't really make any difference. You know, you might get five, ten thousand dollars a year to, to help support you. But again, it's not doesn't really make a difference. Unless I guess now actually the rules have changed. So if you're top hundred junior, you do get wildcards into futures events, which would make a difference. But from a level and from an experience perspective, again, in my case it probably actually did more damage the fact that I thought I was very good and I was playing Grand Slams and I was just took it for granted that that would continue. And that almost lack of respect of the work I had to put in was probably was probably my downfall in the next one or two years after that. The workload just increases. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to what we're saying, do sponsors give these top juniors any money in their deals or is it just you get your apparel rackets, that's it? Or is there any bonus structure in place if you do win a junior grand slam or are they not allowed to get money? There is some money involved. Again, I remember when I was... Um, I think I was 13, probably 13 years old. I had a deal with Nike where I was getting paid for a year. I had a deal with Technifiber where I was getting paid and that was incredible and I was super excited. But in the bigger scheme of things, a few thousand euros compared to the price of a tennis career and traveling and coaching, it helps and anything helps, but it's not going to make the difference at the end of the day. Okay, so it's not like 100K, 200K, 300K. They're only small figures really in the grand no. scheme of things. Maybe the odd person might get 50k a year from Nike if they're exceptional, but you know, it might be five or six or seven thousand euros a year, which is again extremely valuable. But it depends where you're from. If you're from New Zealand, that's just burnt up in flights before you've yeah, <laughs> before yeah. you've even got to any tournaments. True, true, <laughs> true. Yeah, no, look, I but every I can see every little bit does help, but look, they only give out a few then. There's not that many of those, that much cash given out. So what would your advice be? So I'm 14 year old, my 14 year old kid, he's not 14, but is top in his country, he's good, showing potential. Should we get him, he's strong, should we get him playing futures or should we say, okay, well, you know, we're going to spend money going to an academy in Europe. Again, I think it depends where you are in the world. If you live in Ireland, let's say, I would highly recommend trying to get out of Ireland as much <laughs> as you could as a junior. But just yeah. just for a week or two, just compete. Go to Belgium, go to Holland, go to France. Just play a few events where you know you can stay at a, a cheap hotel, 30 euros a night, share it with a couple other players. 
you compete, you come back home, you do it again. And and that builds character and that keeps expenses reasonably low. When you get to 16, 17, 18, it's probably a question of, am I going to go to college or am I going to go ITF or am I going to try and go pro? And and that's where the resources do make a difference and, and knowing how much money you have to spend on your tennis. There's a big conversation that has to happen. True. Going to college is such a good route. The level's so high at the moment and obviously mm. you're treated like a star. I think it'd be quite tough leaving a good university in the States where you've the best gym in the world. You've all the gear thrown at you. You've, locker, you've rooms full of gear. You've a good coach. You've a good trainer. You've that great team atmosphere. All of a sudden, yeah. you're back in the Futures Tour. Obviously, if you're good, you can pick up some points during the summer season that you can leave college being a top 500 ranked player if you're any way useful. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I personally, um, especially for the kids here in New Zealand, I'm, a, I'm, I'm really pushing them towards trying to get to the best college they can. And if they do want to go pro after that, and if they feel like they have the ability, then they should. But nowadays, you know, obviously we get a Tsitsipas and a Shapovalov and a Felix Ojalasim who are, who are a level above everybody. But it's pretty rare these days to get a bunch of 17, 18-year-olds that are ready to go on tour and, and compete. At a, at a top 100 level. So I do think that college route is extremely valuable. If you take someone like Cameron Norrie, who actually grew up in New Zealand, who now plays for Great Britain, he did he did a, a bunch of traveling throughout Australia as a youngster, did some trips to Europe, went to the LTA in England, went to college, and he still bases himself out of, um, I think it's Dallas, where his college is. He, he bases himself out of there, trains from there, and top, top 50 in the world now. So he's he's the type of guy that that just shows that that college pathway is, is a possibility and it's an extremely good option. Yeah, look, there's loads. There's obviously, there's Robert Farah, there's uh, Kevin Anderson, and there's a load. Tommy Paul, who's doing quite well lately. There's, who's new? J.J. Wolf. you seen J.J. Wolf? I'm sure there's loads more. So yes, it's a great place to be. And God, I would have loved, I've heard all the stories from all the Irish shows between Klusky, who else? O.B., Conan Island. They had the, like they had the crack out. They had a good team, good team environment. There, it's not. It wasn't all like it's. It's proper training, good results. They got to be quite good in the country, and they learned a skill as well as getting a degree. So I think it's a great route, and good to hear you say that because you've come from the other spectrum. The thing that they're not trying to sell as much these days. It's good to hear you saying that. So okay, so you, you finished up in your home court and what happened then you say okay I'm going to start coach I'm going to take a break you're quite young what was the next step I actually went on to coaching from there I'd already done a few bits and pieces throughout my last year a bit of coaching some younger kids and you know when when you're on the futures tour you your friend asks you what you thought of the match and I always enjoyed that part getting getting feedback from the other players and also giving the feedback I felt like I always felt like what I said maybe made a little bit of sense. I definitely enjoyed being able to contribute and having that exchange and, and, and talking about tennis in a slightly different way that wasn't just about, you know, how can I win this? It was more about tennis in general and tactics and things like that. So I spent a lot of time in Florida after that, coaching a couple of the younger kids there who were some of the better players within Florida from a 12, 13-year-old age, and then went on the WTA tour, traveling with um, with Julio Glushko, who, who was top 100 at the time as well. That was also a great experience transitioning into that. You're good friends with Alistair McCall. Did you meet him in Florida during your time there? Uh, I actually didn't meet him at that time. That that connection came through um, Kevin Anderson, who who I know a little bit through a mutual friend of ours. And um, he used to train with Kevin um, and that, that's how that came up. But I did spend a bit of time with Alistair and Sam in Florida a couple of years ago, actually. You did. Over the years, we put up a lot of your videos, Seb, and they're always great. And that was one of them that's quite well. Uh, and we had Alistair on the podcast as well. He's a good guy, really good guy, and knows a lot of, knows a lot about everything for tennis, be it on mindset and performance and court work. He's really good. So you did, uh, so you, you did, you did a stint on the tour coaching with Julia. And then after that, you, it was, did you start working with Sam Barry after that? I did a little bit of work for Tennis New Zealand with the younger kids. Again, just, just some, some contract work, taking them to Europe, taking them to some of the under-14 tournaments around Europe, which again, um, getting that variety within the coaching of, you know, you're getting sort of pro players, Grand Slam, then you're going back down to a 14-year-old event and then you go back up and you go, you know, you go a bit back and forth in terms of prestige. But that variety was was just so valuable to to my coaching development and that's actually that's actually what I was looking for for a few years was as much variety as I could get um, because that's where I felt I learned the most from you know going from a, a top 100 player to someone who's 
13, 14, and seeing if you can replicate the same kind of exercises, how they react to it, what are the best ways to get them to that level um, is what I found really interesting. So that was that was a few years of, of incredible learning for me. And did you enjoy touring with players around the world? I did. I did for a, for a long for a long time. I did the last few years since actually since I stopped working with Sam, it, it was very easy to travel with him because he was a close friend of mine, and we got along great. And that that makes a big difference when you're on tour for two, three, four, five weeks in a row. If you don't really enjoy being with the person as much as you might love the tennis, you are missing your family, you are missing your girlfriend, you are missing, mm. you know, yeah, life at home. Um, so if you don't really have that close connection with the player, I do feel like. As a player, it's a lonely job, but also as a coach, it can be quite a lonely job. So after stopping with Sam, I sort of felt like that was it for me for the time being in terms of full-time traveling. It was just a time for me where I felt, you know, I've, I've been away from my family since I was 10, 11 years old. Maybe it's time to spend a bit of time with them before I go back on the road. <laughs> nice. And meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, the Lavi Tennis Academy is, you know, it's becoming real. It's, you're talking about it more, you're thinking, when did that actually begin? When did you first step foot in the Lavi Tennis Academy? So originally we actually called it Pro Tour With Me. That was just the quickest name that I could come up with. What we did with that actually, we did camp. So so there was a year that we had the New Zealand Davis Cup training with us, um, Sam Barry, Dave O'Hare. Peter Cobalt, who was Dave O'Hare, Peter Cobalt, um, Ben McLaughlin, all those boys came up. So there was a, a group of about um, eight or nine people who came to Auckland to train before before the start of season. And that went really well. And we had a lot of well, good press to start off with, but also a lot of people noticed having a bunch of professionals in Auckland made a difference to the younger kids and how they felt about their tennis. And we, we tried to get them involved as much as we could. Those who could hit in with the players came and hit in. Those who weren't yet at the level just came and watched and did a bit of fitness here and there with them. So it was really great to have that atmosphere within New Zealand. Unfortunately, the fact that we're so far away from the rest of the world means that probably couldn't happen on a permanent basis, um, or so I thought at the time. And when I came back to New Zealand in between traveling with Sam, I would quite often put on just a little camp for the kids, so a weekend camp where we just got together the best kids around Auckland. A few came up from Christchurch, Wellington, and we just did a week of training together, which which worked incredibly well. And and then when I came back to New Zealand after stopping with Sam, I just said, well, maybe this is the time to to really kick it off on a permanent basis, which just happened over time. Yeah. Great. And yes, yeah, so before you weren't working from the next gen arena, how was it for people who'd like to set up uh, an academy and have no courts? Was it a challenge in getting courts in there? How difficult was that? When we originally opened the academy, we went straight to next gen. Before that, we we booked some courts at an indoor facility close by um, for our camps, but the academy officially opened straight away at next gen. Um, being in New Zealand and particularly Auckland in the winter, it just rains a lot. So you need indoor facilities, which we have here, which is really key to the business, but also to the development of the players. Because if they're, you know, if they're missing two, three sessions a week, that adds up pretty quickly. That was always top of my list was indoor courts. It happened quite organically to, to landing at next gen, which was just knowing, you know, the tennis coordinator, pitching it to the general manager, showing them how it would be beneficial for the club, beneficial for us. And it was sold. It, it happened really quickly. It happened, um, I think, two or three months of negotiations and then a bit of time to set up and we were ready to go um, four or five months later. Great. And tell me, many indoor and outdoor courts do you have? We have three indoor courts and we have uh, nine outdoor courts, which one of them is the center court here at the ASP Classic, which, which we try and use as much as we can for the younger kids, purely because it's really motivational. I mean... This year, Serena played on it. We've had Nadal, Federer, pretty much every top player, um, apart from Djokovic, I think, has been here in the past ten years. So, so it's it's a pretty inspiring court. You haven't had you haven't had me yet. No, we're still waiting for Fabio. <laughs> <laughs> I've destroyed the kids. The kids are like, I'm never playing here again. But uh, no, and what are, you've play site there? You recently got that installed. Yeah, so we got we got the play site a few months ago, which again was just just another way of of I guess putting our foot down here, showing that we do want to make a difference. You know, if there's anything out there that can help develop our players, show them what they need to work on, give any video analysis feedback, we want it. I think within New Zealand, the current environment doesn't necessarily push up people that want it. You know, it's more like, you know, you can be a good tennis player and let's play it down a little bit. And that's not really, for me, that's not really what wanting to be the best is about. You know, you've got to You've got to say it out loud and you've got to go for it and you've got to work hard every day. So just little things like playing 
indoor courts or the getting the physio in here working with um our fitness trainer sebastian duran who's doing a lot of virtual stuff who works with dimitrov all those little things are just extra pushes that new zealand doesn't currently have so we're pretty excited to be able to to be able to have it on site. That's pretty incredible. You're working with Dimitrov's fitness coach, Sebastian Duran. How's his English, by the way? Very good to speak, quite poor to write. Um, and I think he'll agree okay. with that. Well, <laughs> well, that's great. My goal is to get him on the show at some stage. I'm not sure what is. I figured out after a podcast a few weeks ago that we had to pull. I figured out before I ask anybody who works in a team, I have to ask them now, does the management company, the player's manager, allow them to speak on podcasts? We had to pull a podcast with a top 20 player, the physio on the show. And after it went live, he'd never asked for it. He was working with the player for three years. He didn't think he'd need, you know, he just think, oh, this just, we're just shooting the breeze here, talking yeah. a bit about, you know, there's no, there's no game day secrets being given away. And yeah, he asked me politely, could I take it down, please? Because his job oh. may have been in jeopardy. Okay. So as far as I'm concerned, go for it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's got a wealth of knowledge. I will. He's got a wealth of knowledge and it would be, it would be great to, well, I'm sure great for you to hear him and it would be really great for me to hear him on, on your podcast as well. So yeah. that would be great. I, I will I will work on that. Don't worry. And yeah, so it's your team. Like you've quite a big, for Academy that's been up and running a short while, you actually have a pretty big team there. Tell us about the size of your team and who's on your team. I know you have some great yeah. coaches in there. Yeah, so at the moment, we've split the Academy up into uh, under 10 Academy and a High Performance Academy. All the kids in the High Performance Academy are on site at least five times a week and they're doing at least 12 hours of training with us a week. So that covers tennis and fitness. A lot of them do additional stuff with us. They come in for their private sessions. We take them to tournaments. They come in for, for match play on the weekend. So it covers pretty much anything that a player would need um, as far as I'm concerned. So in our High Performance Academy, we've got we've got four, four coaches that are on full-time. Myself, Chris Bent, who's from England, Jordy Kelly Houston, um, a Kiwi, and Ricky McLaughlin, who's Ben McLaughlin's brother, who's also coaching with us now. And then in the, the under 10 academy, we've got uh, Nick Jakes, who used to work for Wimbledon, Josh Crozier, who's sort of leading the project. And then we've got a couple of assistants that are, that are working with them. So that's our coaching team. Then we've got our fitness trainer on site here. We've got Seb Duran, who's doing the virtual stuff. And then we've got um, obviously administrator and um, our physio, our yoga instructor. So we're a pretty big team, but a really great pe bunch of people to work with, to be honest, really enjoying their presence. And tell me, as your academy has grown, I know you're the you're one of the main coaches there, but what's your day-to-day -day involved? Like, obviously, because it's your man, like you must be a HR guy managing all these people. What's an example day for you? Um, example day for me was, if I take today, for example, we're, we're on court from... Um, generally on court from 6.30 in the morning till 8 with our first group of players. Those kids all go to school, so they have to be done quite early. They shoot out. Um, then I normally have a private session for a couple of hours. We've got a few kids that are now doing the schooling online, so they're able to basically be here for the full day today. Today, I'm actually on court with Marcus Daniel, who's back in New Zealand for a little bit, um, doubles player. So I'll be on court with him. Then kick back off again at 2.30 with, with one of the younger kids and... 2.30 to 4 with him and then 4 to 7 with the groups again. So it's it, it's a pretty pretty busy day in terms of coaching, but that's actually where I'd most prefer to be. I, I do definitely enjoy being on court. That's where my passion is and there's, there's a lot of things to get running, but I think we're starting to get a lot more structure within the academy and I fully trust the full team to do the jobs that they need to do. So, you know, if I'm here or not, life goes on. That, that's really reassuring as a business owner to know that you have a great team in place. I really think you do need a good team, especially you can't be can't be you on the court all the time. Like you only so much Seb going around. And if you're growing the numbers there, so I think a big team speaks volumes. And I'm sure you did say back in Mortogli, it wasn't just about Patrick, it was about the other great coaches there who you have lifelong friendship with now. So it's about you being able to bring in those guys. Yeah, I agree. And and that's sort of that's sort of what we're trying to base our model off here. You know, we've got Patrick who's the director who spends some time on court and in the sort of group settings, um, he walks around, make sure everyone's development plans are, are going accordingly at the moment, because obviously we're not as big as Patrick's Academy. I can be on court with everybody, which I'm enjoying. But then, you know, some, some weeks I might travel with the player. And then we've got Chris, Ricky and Jordan who, who run the Academy extremely well and who, who I learn a lot from as well. So just having them here for me is really great for my development and something that I think I would probably lack if I was just coaching privately within New Zealand. I completely 
completely agree. I probably suffer, like functional tennis is a one-man band here. And with the other business that I had, sometimes you get people in and there was nothing more refreshing than somebody showing you a different way to do something or learning something. I think it's just amazing when you can bring people in and you learn from them. It's a great feeling. Yeah, our Wednesday, for example, our Wednesday is our learning day, you could call it. So in the morning, we have a, a video call with um, with Seb Duran, who basically runs us through video analysis of our players. So really pinpoints key areas that we need to focus on from a movement perspective, gives that feedback to the whole team. Obviously, it's specific to one player, but knowing what's specific to one player teaches all of, teaches all of us a lot about all our players. So we do that. And then in the afternoon, we're on court as a full team running through sessions. No players there, just the coaches trying to just trying to hone down on on our philosophy, how we want to teach the kids and try and share some knowledge. So so those are those are sessions that I personally enjoy a lot. And I think as a team, that's how we're growing. Great. Really impressive. And Seb, you're one of the first companies or academies to buy. We got this fancy new printer that you can print your logo on journals. And you were one of the first guys to <laughs> uh, to get a big batch of them sent down to Australia. Good or bad? I haven't spoken to you about them. Good or bad? You can tell me here. I won't cry. How did how are the journals? Do you find them useful? You got the match and the practice journal. You got both of them. Do you find them useful with your kids? Yep, definitely. I mean, I think from my perspective, the best part about them is it actually it actually gives you structure on on why why you're here and what you show up for. And I think as silly as it sounds, a lot of people just come to tennis, play, and leave. And and to be able to have have a little bit of a routine and to be able to sit down and say, like, this is what I learned today, even just reflect on it for 30 seconds to a minute, it, it makes a big difference in the long run. And I think, again, it's, it's something that's quite fun for the kids to fill out. They can look back at what, what they've done over the last few weeks, few months. But I think the structure that it brings is incredibly important. And that's something that lacks in tennis for some reason. I think other sports do it better than tennis. So so well done on, on signing that initiative. Oh, thank you. No, it's, it's good to hear that because, you know, you ask for feedback and you get some feedback off people, but sometimes it's doing a great job you don't hear. Or sometimes if it's not doing a good job, you want to, that's more important as well. So I appreciate that. Uh, tell me, so do you from time to time miss ring Patrick Mortoglu and ask for some advice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, quite often, actually. I mean, he's. I would say when we do speak, it's probably more on a personal level um, these days, just because again the relation we had has been so personal growing up. But for example, he came down here with Serena for the ASP Classic, and because it was the first tournament of the year, and she ended up winning. They spent almost two weeks here, so he was on court pretty much every day with the academy kids here, and that was that was gr- again great experience for me, great experience for the kids, and being able to have that connection with him. It's important because we're going to send our kids over to Europe for stints and things like that. So they'll all be based at his academy, which which gives me a lot of. Um, I'm pretty confident that they're doing the right thing when they're over there. Great, they're in good hands. In good hands. We're going to end this. Now. I'm just going to ask you one last question. It's something I ask everybody, be it a coach, player, or working in tennis. What advice do you have for juniors out there, 14, 15, who love the game, who dream of being professional? Is there, from your experience, is there anything that stands out apart from one thing, apart from saying trust the process? <laughs> well, if everybody gives that advice, maybe it's good advice. It is. No, it is. Well, I just say something, something a bit, they, they all don't, but I'm just, that's the, I think it's it's become a cliche answer now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I understand. I understand. Well, apart from saying trust the process, I would probably say there's definitely going to be a lot of deceptions over the next three, four, five, ten years. And if you're not willing to put in the work on a daily basis, you're not you're not really going to get where you want to go. But if I was to just say one thing, be listen to your coach, make sure you have a good one. Great. That's great. And that's really important. You want a coach who's invested in you as well, as in who believes in you and who you've good fun with as well. It's right getting the mix and who you enjoy showing up to coaching with every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's that daily, it's that daily grind that you know, you've got to do it in the right in the right mindset. And if you have someone that you trust and you get along with, you know, everyone makes mistakes. He or she will probably make a few mistakes, but in the long run, if you if you listen and you put in the work, you'll probably get somewhere. Seb, it was a pleasure having you on. I really enjoyed that. And good, I know I know you a while now, but I was good to to dig deep and you find out more about your past. And yeah, thank you very much. No, thanks, Seb. Appreciate it, mate. Hope you enjoyed that episode. It's definitely one of the more, for me, touching episodes that I've had. I thought it was a really open uh, conversation from Seb. And yeah, I thank him for being honest and open with us and giving us insights from those early 
ages, which we don't hear about too much. So thank you very much, Seb. In other news, we'll be back next week, same time, same place. Shout out to our podcast sponsors, Head. And as I've said before, if you're new to podcasts, hello. And if you're new or been around a while, please make sure you hit subscribe button. Please make sure to tell your friends and family, anybody interested in tennis about us. Uh, word of mouth growth is huge for us. So would really appreciate that. And finally, if you're new to the podcast, make sure you hit the subscribe button. If you've been around a while, please recommend us to all your friends and family or anybody who loves tennis. Word of mouth recommendations mean a lot to us and they're a big part of how we grow this podcast. So I would really appreciate a share. And yeah, that's it. I'll be back next week and thank you very much for listening. Bye.